Good morning. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, we're going to be starting in verse 22. Last week we started back in the book of Luke, which is a series that we've been walking through, or as Glenn said, kind of crawling through the book of Luke for the past several years. And uh, last week I said one of the reasons we love to walk through full books of the Bibles of the Bible is because it forces us to wrestle with passages that are challenging. Well, today is one of those passages. And so before we dive into that passage, uh, I want to just celebrate that I, I think I'm looking out there and many of you were at man camp this past weekend and man, it was, it was phenomenal. Uh, we had close to 40 guys come out from, there was five different churches that were involved by the end of it. Uh, we had just some great conversations. I mean, we, we had fun together. Uh, guys came together and talked about friendship, biblical friendship and accountability and discipleship. And uh, I was challenged and, and refreshed. And so I, I appreciate everybody that was a part of that and helped out with it. Uh, it was really good. And, and I, I will say this, I slept really well last night. Uh, <laughs> I was very thankful for that extra hour of sleep, the and and I also have a, a whole new level of empathy for for people who have to sleep out in the middle of the the winter, and the cold, um, and I would encourage you if you're not connected to Mark 12 and the White Flag Shelter that's going to be starting up up here very shortly to get connected. I think they've got a meeting this Wednesday after the community meal that you can stick around if you're not connected with that. I would highly encourage you to, to volunteer and help out much-needed ministry, which is a good segue into the sermon today because one of the challenges that we have in our community living in this area of the country is that there's a million churches around, <laughs> and that doesn't sound like a challenge. I mean, even from right here, you can probably throw a stone and hit about five churches. But the challenge is, is because of that, many people in our community have been exposed to at least a little bit of church, and they can even, many of them, speak a little Christianese. And so you ask them if they're a Christian, and a lot of them will say yes. And I know this is becoming less true as our country moves more and more away from Christian values and becomes more secularized. But still today, living in the Bible Belt, often you ask somebody if they're a Christian, they'll say, yes, of course I'm a, a Christian. But then you probe a little bit deeper and you start to recognize that their understanding of what it means to be a Christian is much different than what the Bible teaches. Many people view themselves as Christians simply because their grandma took them to church when they were young. Or they went to a VBS when they were like nine and ended up getting baptized. Or currently they're, they're attending some kind of worship gathering a couple times a year because it's their family's tradition. And because of that, they, they consider themselves Christians. Well, in today's passage, Jesus is going to blow that mentality out of the, out of the sky, kind of like Jacob blew, I think, every uh, pigeon out of the sky last Friday. Uh, he is going to show us what it really means to be a Christian. And so let me give you some context before we dive into this passage. Remember last week, if you were here, Jesus gave two parables that taught about the nature of the kingdom of God. And now Jesus is going to start a series of teachings on how one enters into that kingdom. 
And so let's pray, and then we're going we're gonna to dive into this. Father, your word is a, a light unto our path. It teaches us truth. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It is able to pierce and expose our hearts. It's, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so I pray that you would help us to understand it. Help us to see the significance of your word for our lives today. Help us to obey your word. Help us to have more faith. Help our lack of faith. Help our hearts to to treasure you above everything else in this world. Help us to see your glory in this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are picking up in verse 22. He, talking about Jesus, went on his way through, or through the towns and the villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And so Luke here reminds us that Jesus is on a path. He's on a trajectory towards Jerusalem, towards the cross. He set his face in that direction, and, and that is where he is headed. Verse 23, and somebody says to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, we don't know who is asking this question. Maybe it's a Pharisee who is trying to show off and say, hey, look how good I am. Look how awesome I am. Surely I'm going to be in the kingdom of heaven. Surely I'm, I, I am and these other people are not. Might be a Pharisee or it might just be somebody asking a very sincere question. They've been around Jesus for a while and they've heard his teaching and Jesus has definitely implied several times by this point that this is true, that that there will be many that don't enter into the kingdom of heaven. I'll give you a couple examples. The parable of the sower. A farmer throws out seed and three-quarters of it lands in unfertile ground that die, and the seeds die. When In chapter 9 of Luke, Jesus has this large following and he turns to them and talks to them about the, the cost of discipleship. I mean, if you're going to follow me, he says, pick up your cross daily and follow me. And so I can understand if this is a sincere question. We don't know the spirit behind the question, but listen to how Jesus responds to this question. Will there only be a few who are saved? And he said to them, verse 24, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Open to us, and then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. And then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say to you, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself cast out, and people will come from the east and the west and the north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God, and behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. So it's interesting, Jesus doesn't actually answer the question directly, does he? which is typical of Jesus. 
Instead, he gives a series of warnings. There's three warnings in particular that I'm going to point out this morning. The first warning is this, that the door is narrow. The door is narrow. He says, strive to enter through the narrow door. Jesus is implying that entry into the, into the kingdom, it's, it's not easy. In Matthew's gospel, there's a parallel passage that makes this point even more explicit. Matthew 7, 13, and 14. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And so Jesus instructs them to strive to enter through this narrow door. Now, how do we do that? How do we strive to enter through the narrow door? Well, first of all, you need to understand that Jesus is the door. There is no other door. There's no other gate into the kingdom. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's not multiple doors leading into the same heaven. Much of our world believes that today. Many will attempt to find another door through false religions or false gospels. Many are, will try to make their own door by self-righteousness and, and self-effort making up their own man-made rules. But these are the many who enter into the wide gate that lead to eternal destruction. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, I thought salvation came through grace alone, through faith alone in Christ. It isn't striving by its very definition of works. I mean, Ephesians 2, right? By, you're saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that nobody can boast. And so what is this striving that he's talking about? Okay, so this is where context is king. If you're going to understand this passage, you have to understand the context of what's going on. Look back at the beginning of the chapter. This chapter highlights repentance over and over. And by definition, repentance is a change of mind. It's also a change of heart. You're turning away from your sin towards God and faith. And so Jesus here at the beginning of the chapter is asked about his thoughts on why, why would God allow this group of Galilean Jews that had come to worship at the temple and, and Pilate has them murdered while they're doing a sacrifice. And so Jesus responds to that question by not answering the question really. He responds to them by saying that, look, those people who died in that tragedy, they weren't worse sinners than anybody else. And he says, look, if you do not repent, you will likewise perish. And so he begins to highlight repentance. And he, he uh, again, he drives home his point with another example of another tragedy of these 18 people who had been killed by this tower that had fallen on them. And he says again, look, these people weren't worse offenders than anybody else in Judea. They, uh, they died unless, and unless you repent, you will likewise perish. So again, he's highlighting repentance. And then he goes on, he talks about this parable of the, the fig tree that doesn't produce any fruit. And by the end of the story, the, the master tells the vine dresser, okay, give it one more year, but if it doesn't produce fruit again, cut it down. And so he's highlighting that, look, true repentance is going to produce fruit. It's, true repentance is more than simply feeling bad about your sin. It's going to create a new, new heart, new behaviors. New, you're going to change. Your life is going to change because of it. Now, with that as our backdrop, with that as our context, it makes sense that, 
that the striving that he's talking about here in this passage is a striving to repent because repentance is it's never easy. It takes a whole lot of humility to admit that you're a sinner, that you've done something wrong to offend God. There's a striving that needs to happen. It's a striving to trust in Christ, to rely on Christ, to rest in Christ rather than trusting in yourself. It's a striving to kill sin and a to turn away from idols and towards God. And so understand this. Striving to repent is not a work that earns you salvation because repentance is not even possible apart from God's grace changing your heart. The desire to repent needs to be given to you by God. It's God's kindness that leads to repentance. And so like Paul, we strive, we labor with God's power. And so there's a narrow door that calls us that we only enter through repentance. That's warning number one. Warning number two is that many will want to enter into the kingdom but won't be allowed. Look back at the passage, verse 24. It says, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And so then he goes from that and he compares the kingdom to a house. And Jesus, of course, is the master of the house. He holds the keys, whether or not you can come in or not, through the narrow door. And one day, he will close that door. The narrow door won't be a narrow door. It'll be a closed door, and there'll be no more opportunity to enter into it. Verse 25, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door... And you begin to stand outside and you knock at the door saying, Lord, open it to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught, and you, and we, you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Now, I want you to remember who Jesus is talking to here. Primarily, he's talking to Jews, right? These are the descendants of of Abraham. These are the followers of Moses. These are the, the, uh, the heirs of the prophets. I mean, they're thinking, if anybody deserves to be in heaven, it's us. Aren't we God's chosen people? And Jesus is lovingly warning them, it doesn't matter who you are or where you came from, that unless you repent and believe in me, you too will likewise perish. And you'll watch the Gentiles come from the north and the south and the east and the west and enter into the kingdom. And you'll be cast out. And so obviously this is a pretty sobering and also vital message for them to hear. He's saying that, look, you being born and raised as an Israelite, even as privileged as you have been because of that, it's not enough. Even you being in proximity of the Savior is not... I mean, they walked with Jesus. That's not enough to get you into His kingdom. Eating with Him, not enough to get, him in, get you into His kingdom. Listening to His teaching, not enough. Because if that's all you've done when the door is closed, it doesn't matter how hard you knock, it will not open again. Because He says, I never knew you. Well, he says, I, I don't know where you come from. It's that language, I have no personal knowledge of you. Because sin by its nature, it separates you 
from a holy God. And apart from repentance, there is no forgiveness. And if you don't have forgiveness, there is no reconciliation with God. You can't be with God unless he's, you've been reconciled, unless you've been forgiven. And if there's no reconciliation, there's no personal relationship. And if, there's no, if, if the master doesn't know you, he will not let you into his kingdom. I think living in the Bible Belt, this is a message that our culture desperately still needs to hear. Many people in Shepherdsville believe that they are going to heaven because they've been in proximity to other people who claim to be Christians or because they've listened to preachers or they've gone to church or because they were raised in a Christian home with Christian values or because they've tried to be like a Christian. They've tried to behave like a Christian. They've strived to behave as a good person. But none of that's enough. Jesus says you have to repent. Here's a, here's a lesson that God has been teaching me recently and just continues to teach me. The problem of my sin is not primarily about performance. The problem of my sin is primarily about my relationship with God. And so true repentance is not simply feeling bad about my sin because I've failed to perform. True repentance is grieving over my sin because I've despised the living God who has shown his love to me over and over. Repentance is not simply feeling disappointed in myself because I've failed to do the right thing. True repentance is mourning over my sin because I've harmed the intimate relationship that I could have with God. If you're not yet a believer, understand that Jesus has already shown his love for you. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. It wasn't like we have to get our life perfect and then he accepts us. No, while we were sinners, he died for us, paid the price that we deserved for our sins on the cross, proved his power over sin and death by rising from the grave. But here's the thing, simply knowing those facts is not enough. Even the demons believe, and yet they shudder. And so, accepting Jesus into your heart, whatever that even means, that's not what saves you. You have to repent from your sins and surrender, trust fully in Christ, rely fully on what he did for you. Being in church won't save you. Getting baptized, as important as that is, doesn't save you. There's no magic in the water. The only way to enter through the narrow door is to repent and believe. If you're raising kids in the church, they desperately need to hear this. You being raised in a Christian home does not save you. There's a third warning in this passage that reminds us why it's so important not to wait to repent. Warning number three is that hell is real and hell is awful. Hell is being cast out away from the presence of God, away from God's kingdom where Christ rules and reigns. It's eternal banishment, exclusion from the kingdom. 
Hell is missing out on experiencing all of God's love and all of God's glory in heaven. It's missing out from experiencing Jesus face to face, from being, having fellowship, unhindered fellowship with God where there is no more sin in your life. It's missing out on experiencing people coming from the north and the south and the east and the west to worship Christ because he is worthy of our worship. Jesus says that hell will be agonizing, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is a place where God's grace and love are completely removed and only wrath remains. And so I think there's an important question that we need to wrestle with in light of this text. How should you wisely tell somebody who is a professing believer I don't think you're saved. Do you, do you have somebody in your life that you know who claims to be a Christian and yet their life shows no fruit? There, there's no striving to repent of their sins. They, you, you don't see any passion or love for Christ in them or, or desire to serve Christ. How do you speak the truth and love to them? with wisdom and compassion and love. So let me give you some practical advice. Number one, pray. Go to God first. Pray for wisdom and humility and patience. And then pray for spiritual awakening because you don't know their heart. You don't know for sure whether or not they're saved or not. They, they may be a, a believer who's just never been discipled and so... Their life looks very worldly still. Or maybe they are somebody who thinks that they're a Christian, but they're, they're really not. Either way, they need spiritual awakening. That's what we all need. So pray. Number two, check your own heart and your own motives. Okay, ask, why do I feel like I need to talk to this person? Is it because I truly care for them? I truly love them? I truly want what, what's best for them? I want them to, to know and love Christ and treasure him above everything else in this world? Or is there another motivation? Maybe they, they've offended me or maybe they've hurt me and so now I just, I just want to tell them the truth. There's not a whole lot of love behind it. Make sure love is your motivation. Number three, invite them into your life. Invite them to, to, to join you in church if they're, if they're not here already. Allow them to see your life. Talk to them about how God is working in your heart. Perhaps them just observing your relationship with God will convict them and they'll, they'll see that they're missing out on something. That was a big part of my conversion is I, I saw people my own age who loved the Lord and I realized I didn't, I, they had something that I didn't have. So invite them into your life. Number four, talk to them about their church experience. experience. Uh, they, they profess to be a Christian. Talk to them about it. Model for them how you respond spiritually to, to the singing and the hearing of, of the gospel. And talk more about their, their heart and affections than their behavior. Okay, we're not, we're not about a simply behavior modification. It's a heart issue. Sin is a heart issue. It's a relationship issue between them and God. Talk about authentic spiritual emotions that are created by the Holy Spirit through a changed heart by the Word of God. Talk about how your desires and your passions have changed because of Christ. And then, number six, listen to them. 
Listen to them. Ask probing questions. Get to really understand their hearts. Don't make assumptions based on their outward behavior. Ask things like, what is it like for you to fear God? What does it mean for you to fear God? What does it mean to you to love Christ with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength? Ask them, when do you feel most alive in Christ? Or when you're anxious, how does Christ help you? It's a great question to ask them. What do you think about repentance? What, what does true repentance look like? That's a good probing question to see where their heart is. The point is to draw them out so that they might recognize that maybe their hearts are not genuine. Because a genuine believer experiences a heart change. They, they've got, you've got new emotions, new desires, new passions New purpose, new identity. It's not just about new ideas or new patterns of behavior. And then finally, number seven, express your concerns. When appropriate, when it seems right, express your concerns for their soul. Show that you really do care about them. And this obviously should be done with a whole lot of gentleness and humility. Uh, you might ask them if, this is, this is a really good approach, I think. Ask them if they struggle with assurance of salvation. Like, do you ever struggle knowing for sure that God is going to save you? And then be honest with them. I think that's a struggle we all have at some time. Okay? And you, so you can relate to them with that and confess that, that, yeah, you have that same struggle. But then go on to share, okay, how God's promises help you to battle against your doubts and you encourage your own soul through the promises of God. And through that conversation, what you might find is they, they confess, you know, I don't, I don't know that I've ever truly become a believer. Or they might be offended. <laughs> if we're honest, that may happen. And in that case, you just affirm to them that, look, I love you and I care for you deeply. I don't want to break this relationship. But I care too much about you not to say something. This was my story. I grew up in a, a Christian home. My parents took me to church every single Sunday. I was in the youth group. I went through catechism classes. I, uh, I knew all the stories. Um, but my heart had never been captured by Christ. I never saw the significance of the gospel in my own life. In fact, I looked at God more like a genie that gave me wishes when I needed something and a Savior and a Lord that I needed to follow. I had no personal relationship with him. But then I got to college, and there's a, a guy who sat me down and clearly shared the gospel with me and made sure I understood that just being raised in a Christian home doesn't make me a Christian. In fact, I think he was the one that first told me that, look, just because you're in a garage doesn't mean you're a car. Just because you're in a church doesn't mean you're a Christian. And he explained to me my need to repent and believe in Jesus. And my life has never been the same since. I don't know what your story is. Maybe today you come in here and you've been raised in the church yourself, or maybe you recognize, you know, I, I don't have a relationship with Christ. I've, I've never had a relationship with Christ. And let me encourage you, the door has not closed on you yet. But do not wait, because there will be a day 
But that narrow door will close forever. And for those who have not trusted in Christ, repented of their sins, they will be cast out forever. And so as believers, let's love people enough. When we see them, if they're going off a cliff, let's love them enough to turn them around. We can't turn them around ourselves. God's got to be the one that does it. He's the one that changes their heart. But we can do everything we can do to warn them to go in the other direction. Today is a loving warning from Christ. Let's pray. Father, as difficult as this passage is, I thank you that you love us enough to warn us that we need to strive to enter into the narrow door through striving for repentance and believing and trusting in you. And I pray that if there is anybody in this room who has not yet surrendered their life to you and trusted in you and turned from their sins, I pray that you would open the eyes of their hearts. They would see the significance of the gospel. They would recognize your love for them and their, your willingness to forgive them if they will only repent. And their lives would be forever changed because of it. I pray as we move into a time of worship that we would be reminded of the the lengths that you went through to show us your love and to save us from the wrath of God. And I pray that we would thank you and that our, our thanksgiving would erupt into worship and praise and a bold proclamation of the gospel as we leave this place. Help us remove the fear out of our hearts that keeps us from sharing the truth in love with our family and our friends and our brothers and our sisters and our neighbors and our coworkers and the people we go to school with. Give us boldness. Help us not to be ashamed of the gospel. Help us to love others enough to tell them the truth. Gently, humbly, and passionately. In Jesus' name, amen.